Hello comrades and welcome back to Marxist Voice, the podcast of Socialist Appeal. For this week's episode, we've got another talk from last year's Revolution Festival given by Fiona Lali on the topic of culture wars and the fight against racism. Ever since the Black Lives Matter protests in the summer of 2020, the issue of racism has been forced to the forefront of people's minds. On top of this, the last year has seen the Tory government ramp up its attacks on the Black Lives Matter movement and anti-racists. All the while, the government deny that institutional racism actually exists in the UK, and even go so far as to claim that poverty amongst white people has been ignored in favour of ethnic minorities. It is therefore necessary that the labour movement stands up to these lies and these attempts to divide different sections of the working class against each other. But there is a lot of confusion on how to do this and how to actually fight racism. Some, for example, are distracted by the Tories' culture war and try to fight it on their terms. But, as Fiona will point out, the real solution is to link the fight against racism with the fight against capitalism. So with that in mind, let's get started with this week's episode of Marxist Voice, the podcast of Socialist Appeal. to start by talking about well what is the culture war we've heard it spoken about a lot um, in the media recently and I say that certain things have been raised and presented as really important national issues um, national debates if you will over the last few years and one of those is statues which Kieran mentioned in his introduction you know what statues line our streets because we do have statues of slave owners and different important figures from the British Empire for example who decorate buildings and decorate universities and in, in, in very di- in different places um, and road names and all of this sort of stuff. But even the empire itself, the British Empire, the way that it's taught in schools, was it a good thing? Was it a bad thing? How should we think about our history and what does this mean? Rural Rural Britannia, um, the song that you could maybe consider the the anthem of the British Empire, um, should that be sung on the last night of the proms? That became a big debate and and whether that was appropriate or not. Taking the knee, as the England football team did this year, um, was that the right thing to do or not? And all of this is an example of the culture war. And to all of those questions, the Tories have a lot to say. They've got a lot to talk about when people ask them about this. They would say, yes, we should have all of those statues up. It's a part of our history. Yes, the empire was a good thing and we should be proud of that history again. And yes, Royal Britannia must be played. I think Jacob Rees-Mogg even played it through his phone um, in, in, in Parliament at one point. But no, it's absolutely wrong to take the knee. That's, that's definitely you know, not what they say. And and what are they doing when they say these things? What lies behind those statements? Well, first of all, it's obviously dog whistle racism. They're saying things that aren't overtly racist. They're not standing up and saying black people are inferior and therefore they should be oppressed. But they are making statements that essentially defend symbols of racism. They defend the figures and the people who were important architects in the misery and the slavery and the oppression of people all over the world. But crucially, I would say they're directing all of the conversation about racism that has come out of the BLM movement. They're relegating it into a sphere of culture and thought and language and what we say and who we look at and and what do the streets of our country look like as well. And I would say that this battle over racism 
is taking place in a slightly different way to how it was in the past, to how it has been done in the past, sorry. Because racist violence still exists, but if we look back 30, 40, 50 years ago, if you look at the 70s, for example, where you might have mobs of white youths beating up black and Asian people, there were areas where it was not safe to walk home alone at, light, at night, um, you'd be called a black bastard, or, or many other racial slurs were freely and often used against different people of colour, and that was day-to-day -day life. And at that time, the ruling class didn't really condemn it, they didn't really have to put on a show and pretend that they cared so much about racism. But today, after the racism of the Euros final, for example, even Boris Johnson said that all racists should crawl back under the rock from which they came. So they can't confront it head on in the exact same way. So we have this culture, we have these debates and these endless talks in the media about what is acceptable and, and cancel culture as well, for example. But at root, the, the culture war is a strategy. It's a strategy that's employed by the Tories to have ownership over this idea of culture and, and what it even means. British culture, obviously. And there are talks on this weekend that I think have probably already explained the insurmountable crisis that British capitalism finds itself in, that the economy finds itself in. And that's really important for us to understand, because why do the Tories even need a culture war? What function does it serve? Living standards are plummeting, life expectancy is declining, you've got cuts to social care, cuts to education, cuts to the NHS. This is the political backdrop to everything that we're seeing and experiencing right now. So why do the Tories want to define Britishness? First of all, I would say there's no such thing as Britishness. It's a completely made up thing. British workers have more in common with workers from other countries. British workers have more in common with Chinese workers than they do with British capitalists themselves. But when you have a deep economic crisis, as you do today, when you've got a government that's lurching between different, um, different crises, whether it's um, the cost of fuel or it's queues or, or various other things, anger begins to grow. And the ruling class understands very well where that anger can go and how that anger can begin to be concentrated towards them if nothing is done about the situation. So they have to dilute the anger. They have to dilute it and divert it and fundamentally distract people from what is causing the problems in their lives. I'd say that human beings are not naturally racist. They're not naturally patriotic. They're not naturally anything. Human beings are the product of their environment. And our environment changes, it changes over time. History, the history of humanity is one of constant evolution and constant change. And the ideas and the morals and the systems that we operate in have been a part of that evolution and change as well. The history of humans spans thousands of years, but if we narrow our catchment area slightly, we can see what's happening in terms of the culture war in Britain today, this battle over culture. Because during any war, if we take a war, it's imperative for the ruling class to whip up patriotism, to ask people to give their lives for something, for a cause. They need to believe in it deeply. They need to feel that it is worthy of risking their lives. Marx even said that an idea can become a material force once it grips the minds of the masses. So we have different examples in history of how the ruling class does whip up patriotism, often in wars like World War I or World War II. And it did work initially, and it does work initially, but it doesn't work forever, and it can't work for too long because it's not true, because it's based on a lie. All wars under capitalism are based on the conquest of markets, raw materials, or spheres of influence, naked profit. 
not love of country or, or love of people or anything like this. But they needed it at the time of those wars to distract from the horrors of war and the difficult conditions, the rationing and so on that people were forced to live through. So if we come to today, even before the pandemic, we had soaring austerity and inequality in society. And then the pandemic exacerbated all of those problems. It shone a light on the gulf between the rich and the poor in society. And during the pandemic, Boris Johnson consciously described the virus as though it were an enemy and that we were at war with the virus. He attempted to inject, at least at the start, a certain wartime spirit to bring people together um, to fight the virus. But it didn't catch on because it's a lie. And that's the context and the reason that we're seeing this culture war. It's the same thing. It's an attempt to distract from the crisis and then to create enemies. The added value of an actual war or the wars I was talking about in the past is that it's true. If you have an actual enemy attacking your country, it's much easier for the working class to believe um, that it's in their interest to take part in that war. In that war. Um, they might believe that they are actually protecting themselves. So what happens when the ruling class needs to distract but has no actual enemy? Well, they're creating them. They're creating them now. And the Tories are creating an enemy, as Kieran already said, out of, broadly speaking, the woke left uh, ethnic minorities, the London metropolitan elite, and so on. And that's one side of this battle. And on the other side of the so-called battle is you have um, the so-called white working class, who are a unified bloc, according to them, who exist in the north only um, and want to defend Churchill statues all day only. But that is how the Tories view it. That is what we're presented with. But this is a lie. But every lie to be believable has to prey upon some semblance of truth. And I would say, although the culture war has been foisted onto the left and foisted onto Black Lives Matter from the ruling class, we have to say that there have been mistakes made by the left in its response that has not doused the fire, but has actually ignited it. And I'm going to come on to explain this. Because there are some on the left, I would say, who also view the white working class as a unified bloc, a unified racist bloc, in fact. But the second you accept that premise, you're accepting the premise of the culture war, you're accepting this lie. So how can we confront racism in the working class without damning or condemning the working class in the same sentence? And I would say we have to start by explaining where racism comes from, and it comes from the ruling class. It comes from class society, and it comes from capitalism. And when I say racism comes from the ruling class, I don't just mean in its literature or how they describe people or what they've written, and I don't just mean in the education system and what we're taught about, which is often what we hear in discussions about racism, that it's, it's kind of centered on what we were taught in, in school and, and how racist and how wrong that is. But we have to say that racism in the UK is the direct result of slavery and the British Empire and the ideas that came out of those systems. Those systems, both slavery and the British Empire, are embedded in British capitalism. And it is through those systems that British capitalism grew rich. That is why you cannot separate the question of racism from the question of capitalism, because the racist ideas that poison society flow completely from that. But we've just seen Black Lives Matter all over the world, but in the UK, thousands of people, or globally millions of people, who've come out onto the streets to fight racism, to fight against what they see as racism in society. And with it has come a burning passion from young people, from young people and workers who really want to fight racism. They want to get rid of this poison in society. 
But using the culture war, what the Tories have done is take the fight of racism and relegate it, as I said at the start, into this sphere of culture and thought and language. And the mistakes that the left then make is they follow their lead. But I would say we cannot fight racism on the Tories' terms, but more importantly, we can't fight racism in this sphere of thought and, and culture and language. Thanks. And without the class struggle, you're incredibly limited in the fight against racism. You're limited, I would say, to moral victories, fundamentally. But we've seen expressions of this. We've seen certain moral victories, if you will, over the last few years, expressions of this anti-racism. So in 2016, Colin Kaepernick started taking the knee during the US national anthem. He was this footballer, and it was initially met with hostility in the media. It was viewed as a betrayal, and you know, it was very unpatriotic for, for him to do that. But it caught on eventually because it was an expression of a wider mood in society, a wider truth in society, that the American anthem and the words, you know, the land of the, of the free are dripping in hypocrisy and the blood of slavery and, and the brutal conditions that capitalism, American capitalism produces, not just for America, but the whole of the world. And then a few years later, during the current, you know, the last BLM protests in Britain, we saw another expression of this anti-racism. The Edward Colston statue, a statue of a slave owner in Bristol, was removed, well, not just removed, it was thrown into the harbour um, by protesters who had come out on that day. And this was a brilliant display of, of defiance to how history um, is preserved um, by the ruling class and presented by the ruling class. And then this summer, we've seen the England football team take the knee before the before their matches, which got also received some hostility. In fact, it was condemned by the Tories. Preeti Patel and Boris Johnson both condemned the taking of the knee. Preeti Patel called it gesture politics. Again, not explicitly being racist, but condemning an act of anti-racism, sending a clear signal on where she stands. But the truth is taking the knee and removing the statues, they are fundamentally gestures. These are just gestures. But when all of this is whipped up so much in the media, people want to know, okay, well, where do you stand? What do you think? Should we have those statues up? Where do you stand as a Marxist? Do you support taking the knee? Um, in trade unions, in workplaces, maybe just in your conversations, this is the sort of thing that people are talking about. What should we do with all the statues? And I think we should say, well, yes, we should remove them. <laughs> Let's remove the statues. But fundamentally, we need to concentrate our efforts on removing the material basis for racism in the first place. So remove all the racist figures, if you like, but let's start with Boris Johnson. Let's start with the figure who is implementing the racism that's causing people of color to suffer in the UK today. But where do these gestures even come from? I would say they're completely secondary, accidental products of a mass movement that is actually now being seized upon by the ruling class. It's kind of changing tactic on how to deal with these expressions of anti-racism because it's a distraction. As I said, when taking the knee first started in America, it wasn't supported. But there has been a huge turnaround in opinion on taking the knee, which demonstrates that we've had a mass movement that has actually terrified the ruling class to the point where the Democrats took the knee. And you've had police officers in different protests in different places also taking the knee. And this is because they're scared they can see what's happening and they have to they can't go on a full out war and say, no, this is totally awful. They have to be a bit careful as to how they deal with it, because this mass movement is there and it can grow and there's potential behind it. So we have this mass movement that's scaring the ruling class. So we should say, well, how do we get it to go somewhere? How do we get it to be successful? 
And I'd start by saying, well, we have to look at the past. We have to look at other struggles that have come before us, other struggles against racism, and see what worked. And I would say that racism has been fought successfully when it was done on a class basis. And there's different examples from history that we can look at that show this. In 1936, it was an alliance of trade unionists, of socialists, communists, Jewish groups, and local residents from the east end of London who famously blocked uh, Mosley's black shirts at the Battle of Cable Street and the fascists that were trying to move then. Forty years later, we saw a similar thing at the Battle of Lewisham in 1977, where we saw, again, I would say, the might of the working class in smashing racism and smashing fascism, a fascist organisation called the National Front. So what happened on that day? The National Front had planned a march. They wanted to go on a parade. Um, ostensibly on the issue of crime or various other things. But it was, it was a big racist parade, effectively. And it was well planned. Everyone knew this was coming. It wasn't a secret underground thing. Everyone knew that this march was coming up. And there were actually attempts to have the march banned by an organization called um, the All Lewisham Campaign Against Racism and Fascism. But those attempts failed. They appealed to the High Court to try and get it legally stopped. But it didn't work. So on the morning of the 13th of August in 1977, you had hundreds and hundreds of these National Front members assemble to go on this racist parade. And that group, the All Lewisham Campaign Against Racism and Fascism, they told counter demonstrators, don't go to New Cross, don't go to where the National Front is. And they organized a protest miles away in a, in a different place. But people wanted to fight. Why should these racists and fascists be allowed to walk down the street and intimidate people and parade their racist ideas? Why should that be allowed to happen on our streets? So actually a different counter-protest was organised and was held by a, a culmination of socialists, of different trade union branches and other community groups to confront the National Front on their march and stop them from marching fundamentally. And the police went to that march. You had 4,000 police who were armed with riot shields and that was the first time the police were armed with riot shields in this country um, since uh, um, outside of Northern Ireland. And the police came and they defended the fascists and there was this huge battle, and that is why it's known as the Battle of Lewisham. But importantly for us, the workers won, and they smashed the National Front, and it was actually a really instrumental part in the disintegration of the National Front entirely, which then um, you know, eventually disintegrated and, and, and no longer exists. And so what is the lesson from the Battle of Lewisham? That we cannot look to the courts, we cannot look to the police, and we cannot look to any form of the state as a protector against racism. We have to rely on ourselves, and we have to rely on our class and we see this again and again even more recently obviously there are different racists and different far-right groups that still exist in society although I would say they were sm they're much smaller and much more scattered than they have been in the past but more recently when you had the EDL the English Defence League um, when they were strong and they used to try and you know plan marches and, and protests or whatever it was they would become really demoralized and disintegrated when whenever they assembled you would have coalitions mass mobilizations again of socialists and youth to come out and stop them and stop them moving. So we say that the only way to deal with fascists and the far right to confront racism head on is to base ourselves on the strength of the united working class movement to clear them off the streets completely. And this is why anti-racism must become fused with class politics with the class struggle because it works. But then in order to put the anti-racist movement on a class basis we need to purge the anti-racist movement of the wrong ideas. 
When Black Lives Matter first erupted, it was very spontaneous, and that spontaneity was a strength. It couldn't be held back by any bureaucratic leader or structure. But that can quickly unravel and can become a weakness, and it did become a weakness of the BLM movement. The question of leadership is fundamental to the success of any movement. So in July last year, there was when all the, the, um, the, the protests, the BLM protests were taking place, when the far right um, declared that they were going to descend on London to protect the statues, to protect Churchill, rather than confront them um, and rather than show them the true force of anti-racism and the potential for anti-racism that exists in this country, the BLM organisers cancelled their protests and they said, oh, well, if the far right are coming out, then we shouldn't. We're, we're not going to have a protest. We want to avoid the violence. We don't want to get involved with that. But what did that mean? It meant the far right came to London, you had a thousand thugs roaming London, um, free to do whatever they wanted, and that should never have been allowed. They should never have been allowed to have that confidence that they had the ability to run around London in that way. Some people came out despite the fact that BLM, you know, uh, anti-racists came out despite the fact that BLM had cancelled their protest, but it was only around 700 people because BLM cancelled their, their, their protest. There was a lot of confusion. People didn't know what to do. So only about 700 people came out. So they were, they were the minority. The, 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 the far right outnumbered them. And the police kettled the anti-racists in, in, that, in, that, in that situation. Meanwhile, the far right were able to have this confidence, this arrogance that they had won the day. And actually, the decision to not oppose them did not lead to fewer violent scenes. It just allowed the far right to run around. And they did. They, they, they bottled someone, uh, a young, Asian man was bottled in the face. He wasn't even on the anti-racist demonstration. He was just walking through London and a fascist attacked him. And so this was a complete mistake by the BLM organizers. And I would say that if the call had been put out by the BLM organizers actually to increase the amount of people that needed to come out on, on that protest that day because of the threat of the far right, then I think you would have seen a much higher number of people coming out, even from all the other BLM protests that had happened across that summer. And we would have been able to physically smash the far right. Um, and that would have been a powerful physical, material, and moral victory against the far right fundamentally. And they would have, you know, run away under police protection probably, but they would have they would have they would have left. And it would have reduced their ability to mobilize for future events and for years to come. And it would have given confidence to us, to our class, that we can and will come together to fight against racism. So this was a mistake to cancel the protest. But the responsibility of that mistake, the responsibility that the that the, the, the BLM um, organizers kind of abdicated on doesn't lie with them alone in fact you could say that there are limits to which the, the the BLM organization was even responsible for all of those BLM protests anyway there was a lot going on at that time and a lot of different organizations as well um, but the point is to confront the, the threats of the state and, and the far right, the, me, the movement needs organization. And that is where the labor movement comes into this question. Because above all, it is the labor movement that should have been providing that organization. Year in and year out, you have the TUC, the Trade Union Congress. They pay homage to the Battle of Cable Street that I spoke about earlier. So all these years ago, wasn't it great that, you know, back when we were doing stuff and the trade unions came out and the workers came out and they fought against these fascists and these racists. They pay homage to it. 
Yet it's in the face of these BLM protests, where were they? And what did they do? And what lead did they offer? They didn't. It's left to the small unions, to individual trade union branches or trades councils to take the initiative to confront racists and to confront the far right. But it's the elementary duty of the organised labour movement to have come to the assistance of the BLM movement when it, when it started, and they failed to do so. But this mobilisation of the working class can only happen with class politics, with class demands, which are the only things that can unite people. So I said for the labour movement and the anti-racist movement um, to be successful, we need to purge it of bad ideas. Um, and that means identity politics. And we have to talk about this because we can't just talk about our ideas and the ideas of Marxism in an, in an echo chamber, especially in discussions about racism. We have to confront the dominant ideas that are in anti-racist circles and that dominate all discussions about racism. And I want to start by talking about um, white privilege. I think first we need to understand how white privilege, the term, the concept, is used and weaponized by the Tories, and then how the left makes mistakes in responding to it. Because this has been a really big part of the culture war. Um, the government released a report earlier in the year that was supposed to investigate racism in the UK, institutional racism in the UK. But the conclusions of that report were that actually institutional racism doesn't exist in the UK, that actually the UK is a model for race relations, and actually white working class people um, are being ignored in favor of ethnic minorities. Um, so the report states, I'm gonna quote it because the language that is used is really important um, in, in how we understand this. It says, the core cities outside London, with the exception of Bristol, have been underperforming, but it is the ex-industrial and mining areas and towns on the coastal periphery who are the, which are the poorest and least productive places. Towns like Barnsley in South Yorkshire, Dudley, Middlesbrough in the northeast, um, or Blackburn in the northwest. And then it says, in simple numerical terms, this is overwhelmingly a white British problem. So what does this mean and how should we respond to this? Well, first of all, we are aware of the poverty and the deindustrialization that affects those areas and the poverty of these deindustrialized areas. And we're also aware of where it comes from. It is the result of years of attacks um, going all the way back to Thatcher um, against these places and against these communities and against the working class. And the report says this is overwhelmingly a, a white British problem, but it's not. It's overwhelmingly a class problem. I mean, it talks about London doing well. The obvious question to ask is who in London is doing well? And it's not all Londoners who are, who are living a fantastic life. But the language in this report and the language that other Tory MPs use is a really cynical attempt actually to appeal to the problems in those places, to appeal to sections of the working class in these former industrial heartlands and try and present it as though the Tories are now on their side. The report goes on. It says, white children on free school meals lag behind every other group in progress eight attainment levels at secondary school. They are also the least likely to progress to university Poor white groups, and especially poor white boys, do badly in the education system everywhere, whereas in some areas at least, especially London, poor ethnic minorities are improving rapidly. So when have the Tories ever cared about the poor, right? We've seen with the budget release this week um, and the cuts to universal credit, we know exactly where, the, where their priorities lie. It's a complete sham to, to pretend that the Tories care about the, the aspirations of the poorest people in, in places like Barnsley. It's, it's, it's a joke. But what is this saying? What lies behind all the words in that report? It's saying to a young white boy in Barnsley that part of the reason your school is underfunded is because too much attention is being given to young black boys in 
in, in, in London, um, aka anything that's introduced to help you know, black and other ethnic minorities, that is against your interest. It's, it's setting these people up as though they have conflicting interests and, and there's not enough resources in society to provide for them. And that is what the Tories say, even though after decades of austerity and the decimation of entire towns and communities under successive governments, they swoop in and they have the audacity to say, actually, we're the ones who are on your side and we haven't forgotten about you, even though we destroyed your lives and your, all of your job prospects for everyone in your town. Now, one of the reports even claimed that the teaching of white privilege um, may partially be to blame for the underperformance of white working class children. Now, do the Tories believe that? No, they absolutely don't. But the point is they know how to weaponize these ideas to divide people. And this does divide people. It works. I would say that many on the left, many anti-racist, really well-intentioned people cling to this term of white privilege. I mean, they reject what the Tories say, and they can point out what's wrong with the Tories. But I think a lot of people believe it's an effective way to raise awareness about racism. They say, oh, white privilege doesn't mean you can't have problems and be white. It doesn't mean you can't be poor and be white. White privilege is simply just recognizing that if you are white, you don't face additional barriers due to the color of your skin. So after Black Lives Matter, you had this flooding of anti-racist reading lists um, being posted everywhere, online, and in, in various different places. And one book that was on nearly every list and went on to become you know, one of the best, you know, top-selling books, I wouldn't say best, but top-selling books of 2020 um, is a book uh, by a woman called Rennie um, Edo Lodge, which is called Why I'm No Longer Talking to White People About Race. And I want to use this as a framework because it's one of the most popular ones and it, and it was used and a lot of people have this book. I have a lot of friends who've got this book um, and, and many of you may have even read it. And in that book, there's a, there's a whole chapter dedicated to white privilege. And she says, white privilege is an absence of the consequences of racism. So I would say, what does this mean? What does that add to our understanding of racism? I think the most generous interpretation of this term um, is just that it recognises racism, right? But that is a very generous way to interpret the term because it's not how it's described and it's not how it's used in the book and, and, and generally, I would say, in, in society. Because really it's used to say, to make this point, that all white people are complicit and therefore responsible for racism. And the first thing we have to say is that divides people and that is a divisive idea. And this isn't just implied, this is literally what she says. And, and, and this is a really dominant idea, I would say, in, in anti-racism. Um, and the problem here when they do this is it lumps all white people into one block and doesn't draw a distinction, actually, between someone like Boris Johnson um, and, and a white worker, a white construction worker in Sunderland, let's say, someone like this, right? Boris Johnson is responsible um, and benefits from racism. Absolutely, there's no doubt about that. But a white worker is not responsible and does not benefit from racism. Okay, that worker can still be racist and can still be susceptible to racist ideas. That is true. But why is that? Because the dominant ideas in any society are the dominant ideas of the ruling class. And the ruling class is racist. That is where racism comes from. And so if the ruling class is racist and you have the harsh, horrific conditions of capitalism that, that, that we live in under, under, under Britain today, then of course some of those racist ideas can take root if no alternative is presented. But that's the important point, if there is an alternative. And I would say that any racism in the working class can be fought and we must fight it. 
But you cannot change the racism of the ruling class. That cannot be fought and that cannot be changed because they rely on it. It's a fundamental part of the capitalist system and it's a fundamental part of them maintaining their position in class society. But the working class does not rely on racism at all. It's, the, it's in the contrary um, and it is not in their interests to, to, to be racist. It is actually in their interests to end racism. So the term white privilege was coined by a man called Theodore Allen, um, who was actually white. Um, and he was, he was critiquing capitalism in his own kind of way um, when he came up with the term during the civil rights movement um, is when it was kind of really coined in America. So a common phrase that you might hear in the labor movement is that an injury to one is an injury to all. Um, the basic premise behind that, obviously, is that you know, by hurting one part of the herd, you're um, weakening the whole herd's ability to fight back together. Um, thank you. But uh, Alan had some problems with this, and in response to it, he wrote, the injury dealt out to the black worker has its counterpart in the privilege of the white worker. To expect the white worker to help wipe out the injury to the Negro is to ask him to oppose his own interests. This is the man who coined the term white privilege, and those are the ideas that lie behind it. And that is the crux of the term, I would say, this idea that white workers have something to gain by racism. Now, racism undeniably pushes black and other people of colour further and further down. It oppresses people. You're doubly oppressed under capitalism as a worker and as a black person or, or whatever it is. But white workers do not benefit from this. The only people who benefit from this, the only people who gain from this are the capitalists and the bosses because they use racism to force workers of different backgrounds in a complete race to the bottom in terms of wages and conditions. If you're paying people a different amount, and if you're paying black workers or immigrant workers slightly less than you're paying, you're paying a white worker, that doesn't mean that a white worker is suddenly getting loads really super high wages. It actually means that the, that the bosses, that the capitalists can use those terrible conditions that the, 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 the worse off workers have, or that the black workers or whatever have, in order to keep the wages of the white worker down as well, because they're thinking, oh God, like it, I could be much worse off. But it's a lie. It's not in a white worker's interest to maintain that system. And the point is, if you make all white people the enemy, then the ruling class has won, right? Because unless we're declaring a full-on race war um, where we just annihilate all white people, then what, what can we do? We can do nothing if all white people are responsible. And you're in a country like Britain, where I'm sorry to say the majority of people are white. We can't do anything with this. And Rennie Edo, Edo Lodge, in an interview, there's an interview of hers in The Guardian. She doesn't do many interviews, actually. She kind of, she wrote this book, and she, but she doesn't, she doesn't like to say so much. But she did this interview with The Guardian, and in it, she was asked, what do you see as the biggest challenge to progress? And she answered that the opposition to anti-racism is masked in passive-aggressive politeness. That is the biggest challenge to progress, according to her, passive aggressive politeness. And actually, what these people say is that, oh, if you, if you talk about the Tories or, or the Nazis or the violent kind of racists, when you talk about racism, then you're actually letting the more pernicious group get away with it, right? You're letting all the other sneaky white people who are, who are secretly racist um, get away with the problem because they're actually the ones who, who tolerate the system and they're actually the ones who've allowed this to continue in the way that it is. But this is a 
don't. They're literally saying, let's move the conversation away from fighting the Tories and fighting the people who are implementing the policies against asylum seekers and implementing the policies that uh, attack BAME workers in this, in this country. They say, let's move the conversation away from them and let's make it everyone else's problem instead. Um, and there's a lot you can say about that then. And there's a lot of books you can write about that if you, if you go down that route. No, we shouldn't talk about the deathly cuts and the austerity that is going to hit BAME workers the hardest. But they've got a lot to say about microaggressions um, and, and all of these secondary, I would say, um, incidents of, of racism that exist in society. But there is so much more to do to tackle the macroaggression, if you will, the fundamental cause of racism, which is capitalism. If I had been asked the question, what is the biggest uh, a challenge or what, what, what was the question? Um, uh, what do you see as the biggest challenge, sorry, yes, to progress? I would say the biggest challenge to progress is that there is no leadership or organisation of the anti-racist movement or of the class struggle itself to take this fight to the Tories who are responsible for the racism and the hardship and the austerity and the problems that working class people face under this system. And the second biggest challenge to progress is that these poisonous ideas will destroy the movement because they're fundamentally divisive and they stop people coming together. In the interview, she was also asked, um, they it said at the end, you know, people look to you for answers. This is the interviewer. And, they say, and she said, there's a sizable audience that wants to know what you think and, and what you have to say right now, right? We've had BLM, your book's come out, it's done really well, like, what are we going to do? Where are we going next? She said, I'm not interested in that. That, that was her response. No real answers for people. Work out for yourselves is, is essentially what she's saying. It's, it's, the, it's, it's not my job to educate you, um, which maybe is a phrase that you've heard. Imagine you're a young person who wants to fight racism. This is the top book of all anti-racist reading books, the top book of 2020. You, come a, you read that book or, or you read that article, whether you're black or white, what ideas and what program do you come away from with it? Other than all white people are the problem. Right, there, there isn't much there. Um, and and you, don't have, you don't come away from that interview, or I would say even from, from, from this book, with a better idea of what racism is and crucially how to fight it. No, you come away with nothing. You're coming away with someone who's saying in a self-righteous way, well, I told you racism existed um, and not much more. This person who, you know, who, when she said, oh, I'm, I'm not interested in that, this is a common thing. It's not, it's not really just about her. It's about this common thread all, um, which is uh, primarily also you find in academia, um, academics, authors who are much more interested in finding a niche to continue their academic careers than they are in finding serious solutions to the, to the fight against racism. Well, we have answers as Marxists in terms of the fight against racism. When we say that the solution to both institutional racism and the poverty that affects white workers or white children um, in, in different places, the solution to both those things is exactly the same and it is class-based. So I'm coming on to the end here. I just want to talk crucially about, okay, what does that mean, class-based? And, you know, I was speaking about the labour movement earlier. The labour movement in the abstract is not a solution. You can't just shout labour movement, labour movement, labour movement and expect some great trade unionists to come in and save the day. That's not going to happen and that's not the case. We discussed on Friday night the problems in the labour movement generally. We have to fight to transform the labour movement into the vessel that it needs to be to actually bring about change and actually bring about social and that includes taking up the fight against racism. 
But wherever you have anti-racism, whether it's in the workplace or in the student movement or the trade unions, all of these ideas infect it, the ideas of identity politics, there was a talk about postmodernism um, earlier today. It infects all of these different places in, in different ways. The right-wing trade union um, solution to racism is quotas. Let's just promote more black people into different positions and that's somehow going to change the systemic issue that exists in society. It doesn't work. Um, so why haven't the trade unions done more in the fight against racism? Well, what we have to understand is that if you compromise with capitalism, then you compromise with racism. Malcolm X famously said that you can't have capitalism without racism and you can't have racism without capitalism. And that is the mistake that the trade union leadership obviously makes again and again and again. They compromise with capitalism. They're not revolutionaries um, at all. The trade unions have not always been at the forefront of the fight against racism. On the contrary, in, in the past, they've played a reactionary role in some instances and have capitulated to things like colour bars and, and immigration controls. And maybe this is something we can talk about more in the discussion, falling for the idea that immigrants are somehow a threat to British workers. This is a horrific, poisonous idea that can and does infect the trade unions in, in some instances and has to be fought um, resolutely. So how can the same organisations who in one instance um, mobilised workers to put their lives on the line to fight the fascists, as, as I gave some examples earlier, how can they then also be complicit in the same racism in, in other periods? Well, they're not fixed things. And actually, the way that the trade unions are, are linked to the class struggle it itself. We can't look at these events or look at anything in isolation to the rest of what's happening in society. It's not to say that in the 70s, the trade unions were just randomly better in that particular period in Lewisham, so a few of them came out and helped mobilise people. But the class struggle itself in the 70s was at a much higher, um, was on a much higher period. Union membership was in a much higher period. The point is, if you accept capitalism, you're going to thrash around looking for different solutions to things, and you're going to come up against identity politics on one hand, or you're going to come up against racism on the other hand. And that is why a fundamental break with capitalism is needed for the leadership of all of these things, of the labour movement and the anti-racist movement, which fundamentally has to become fused. So what should they be doing today? Trade unions should be fighting against employers who discriminate. They should be at the forefront of those fights. They should be organising workers who are forced to work in the pandemic and thinking about you know like the workers in, in in Leicester in those in those factories who were paid nothing predominantly BAME workers um, who who had no PPE trade union should have been at the forefront of the fight and the need for proper PPE during the pandemic why was the BAME death rate so high in comparison to, to in its in its counterpart to, to white workers because BAME workers were much more like because of structural racism and the term BAME, we, we can talk about later, but because of structural racism, if you're BAME, you are much more likely to be in a precarious job. You are much more likely to be on the front line. And therefore, you are more likely to get COVID. And as a result, literally, if you're black in this country, you're more likely to die under capitalism. And that's what we have to understand about the COVID BAME death rate. It wasn't the virus that was specifically attacking black or other, or other ethnic minorities, but capitalism discriminates, not the virus. Capitalism discriminated. And the, the death of those people was the direct result of that. So to sum up, and if we had a fighting bold unions that could have been at the forefront making sure that there was proper PPE, then you could have prevented some of that. So to sum up, we say we have to fight the culture war with a class war. But if we want to change society, then we have to focus on what unites us, not what divides us. And they say, ah, oh, yes, but you have to recognise that people face different forms of oppressions. They compound in different ways. Yes, sure, I agree. And then what? They don't say anything else after that. That is where their analysis ends. Rennie Edo Lodge, at the end of her book, she says, 
When we talk about structural racism, we are talking about the intensification of personal prejudices of groupthink. So I'll just counter that. When we talk about structural racism, we are talking about an economic system that is based on profit, that divides workers among themselves to drive down their living and working conditions, and it uses racism to do that. So the only conclusion you can draw is that the fight against racism has to be the fight against capitalism. So that brings us to the end of this week's episode. I hope you enjoyed the talk and learned a lot from it. If you'd like to learn more about the Marxist view of racism and how to fight it, then I would urge you to check out our education hub over at www.socialist.net forward slash education, where you can find a whole page dedicated to the question of racism, featuring articles and excerpts from longer texts, as well as talks just like this one. And if you'd like to educate yourself even further, then I would encourage you to check out our Marxist Introduction to Racism pamphlet, which is available from well-read books. The link for both of those will be in the show notes of the podcast. Finally, if you want to get involved in the fight against capitalism, which is the only way that we can put an end to all forms of oppression, then I would encourage you to get involved and get organised with Socialist Appeal and the International Marxist Tendency. Once again, just head to the links in the show notes of the podcast to find out more. Thanks everyone for tuning in, and make sure you tune in for next week's episode on Revolution in Latin America with Jorge Martin. I've been your host, Jack Tai, and you've been listening to Marxist Voice, the podcast of Socialist Appeal.